You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Hey friends, once in a while, I have a guest that needs no introduction. Uh, Carrie Newhoff is my guest today. And if I introduced Carrie, it would take almost all that time because uh, he is a church planter, a lead pastor, a former lead pastor. He's, you know, the, the phrase thought leader has become a cliche, but there are still some people that genuinely are. You want to know what they think. Carrie's uh, one of those guys. And uh, of course, also an author. The reason I, I want to carry on the show is because he has two fascinating roles. He both provides information for people, but he's also like the curator of other people's thoughts. Kerry's uh, podcast is a must listen, particularly in COVID for any leader, not just a church leader. One of Kerry's recent guests was uh, Gordon McDonald. And I, I, I sat through that conversation, Kerry, and, and just thought, man, this, this is why you want to catch Kerry's podcast. So Kerry, welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety. Hey, it's so great to be with you, Steve. I loved having you on my show. And uh, it's really great to reconnect again. And the difference that you're making in so many leaders' lives, including some friends of mine, is uh, pretty exceptional. People who, uh, who've who discovered what you do and uh, your life-giving list. My goodness, I'll tell you, that that was really, really helpful to me. I've gone back to that more than once. Isn't that crazy? I, I almost didn't publish it because it felt so simple, but it's one of the most profound things. Always the simple things, isn't it? You know, it's like, it's like you go join a gym. It's like, well, you should eat less and move more. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> That's a billion dollar industry, right? Oh man. Let's, I just want to begin by what are you excited about nowadays? As you look, let's just focus on church leadership. First of all, mm. uh, so many people are talking about how COVID is a challenge and, and, and people are battling but I wouldn't mind just hearing from you. Where are you seeing opportunity? What are you loving? Yeah, it's been a reset, right? Like crisis is an accelerator. It's also a revealer. So if you had talked to me in February of 2020, say, Carrie, how's your life going? I'd be like, Steve, it's great, man. Like I had a system for everything, travel. I flew over 150,000 miles last year. I think, I haven't checked recently, but I haven't flown since March, but like everybody else. <laughs> but um, I think I'd already flown 40 or 50,000 miles by the time COVID hit. And that was like in two months. It was insane. And so my life ground to a halt. And at first it was terrifying. It was scramble, scramble, scramble. What am I going to do? I had, uh, I was literally on a plane to South by Southwest when that thing got canceled. And then I was also scheduled to speak in Australia in six cities. You're alma mater, your home and native land. Outstanding. And uh, that got canceled. I pulled that because, you know, countries were closing and, and then, you know, a whole year of speaking income and opportunities just wiped out. So it was like, oh my gosh, you run all the financials. Are we going to be okay? Uh, but now, you know, we're recording this almost seven months after all that. And it's been a glorious reset. Like I, I miss my friends. I'm starting to really miss a few people that I can't see. Our border's still closed. I'm Canadian. But um, I love this new life. Love my, my being waking up with my wife every day. Um, so there was nothing wrong with the old life. But this is actually less anxious. This is, this is like restful and soulful. I was having dinner with my parents the other night, which again, they're selling a car. So it's one of my hobbies. I love helping people car shop. 
Next time you want to get a vehicle, I'll go into the dealership with you and I'll help you negotiate like that. I love, I don't know What why. do you love about, yeah, what do you love about that? Oh, I know, it's, I don't know a whole lot, but I know that game and I know how to get a really good price. I've had, I've had salespeople chase me into the parking lot, <laughs> turn me around on the highway. I've had them call back and say, we can't do this deal because you actually negotiated below cost. So it takes, <laughs> it takes my lawyer skills and puts it into a really fun place where a lot of people get you know, blindsided. And I'm, listen, I have lots of people who sell cars who are friends. So I, th I think I love cars. I'm a car guy. Yeah. But people drive car payments and they pay 30% more than they should for a vehicle. So it's just fun for me. Anyway, I'm just helping them sell a car of theirs used. And I was at their house at dinner, you know, dessert. We kind of hung out and, and they're getting a little older. So I wanted to make sure that they were 100% comfortable. They didn't feel taken advantage of. And, you know, we spent two or three hours together and mom's like, you never could have done this when you were on the road all the time. And she's right. I would have called them from, you know, boarding some flight and said, I think your vehicle's worth X, Y, Z. You guys good go with it. Okay, let's list it tomorrow. Uh, but now I was able to, to just be with them. And, you know, Saturday, my wife and I are doing a day trip. We're doing a four hour hike, about uh, three hours north of here in northern Ontario. And it's just, it's a better pace, man. And I'm less anxious. So in the time where the world is going crazy, and I'm super concerned over that, um, personally, I'm, I'm less, I'm, I'm as relaxed as I have ever been as an adult. Yeah, you're describing like, if I'm hearing you right, Carrie, you're describing a combination of like forced slowdown and less, um, not ambition, but less drivenness to accomplish or get everything done that you're obligated to. Well, ironically, you know, it's so you're you're right, and it's so weird because um, it's not like I'm putting in fewer hours. Um, you know, I had the time zone thing. I was on the West Coast all the time, and I could do a time zone, no problem. Like three hour difference, I, that was easy to handle. Now I was a little more tired, a little busier. Now I'm still working as hard, but we figured out some new models inside my little company that does the podcast and the blog that actually turned out to be just as or more profitable with less time. So it was a forced reset. I wouldn't have chose this. Nobody would have chose this. There's, yeah. you know, carnage all over and the virus is spiking again now in Canada after having a really good summer. So, I mean, I'm super concerned about that. But I think there are opportunities. Like our church is one of the few in Canada that has not reopened, which right now with there's I don't think we're going back into lockdown, but like they're, tightening the screws a little bit. I think it was a super smart move on behalf of my successor. And we're up like 20% year over year using even numbers. And my audience, like for my podcast, has never been bigger. It's just soaring. Uh, the blog audience is at a historic high. And, you know, so all, you know, we're in this weird place where this forced reset has actually produced a lot more fruit than anybody thought it would. So yeah, it's been a really bizarre year. Yeah, through COVID, one of the interesting projects you took on is you partnered with Dave Kinnaman and Barna. Yeah. And I think Glue as well, right? And you've launched this, this uh, conversation specifically around church leadership and, and COVID. What are you seeing as just two or three of the biggest uh, challenges our, our church leaders are facing right now? Well, one is what you specialize in. Um, David Kinnaman and I work together every week, and he's now doing weekly polling 
which is awesome. So, you know, I've followed Barna since I was in seminary yeah. decades ago when George was still running the company before David came on board. And, you know, you'd read the books, you'd read the articles, you'd go to conferences and hear Barna stuff. But now David is polling in real time. And I've had a little bit of input too from time to time on the questions we're asking. And we're just trying to find out how leaders are doing and anxiety is spiking. Um, the ability to sustain the pace, you know, this crisis, it's my favorite metaphors from Levi Lusco this summer. Levi said, you know, I, I could run the marathon and then I was finished and then someone handed me a bike and then they told me there was a swim and I'm like, what? This is a triathlon. Yeah. And, you know, here we are in the fall or whenever this airs. And what was a crisis is now becoming chronic, the disruption, the dislocation, the habit forming thing. And I think, you know, nobody prepared you for this as a leader. Your team isn't staffed to this. We do in-person events. And so I see a lot of denial. I see a lot of stress. I see a lot of anger online. Um, I read the comments on my blog. We'll, you know, the content I do will get accessed about a million and a half times a month. So we get a lot of feedback, not scientific like David Kinnaman's, but just yeah. We read the stories, we read the emails, we read the comments, we check out people's profile. And like, people are kind of beside themselves. And they're like, how long can this go on? So I have a real concern for that. Um, I'm also, you know, just to be frank, surprised at the pushback on church online. And, you know, here I am from my basement, there you are from an office, and we're connecting just fine, doing a podcast that's going to help 1000s of leaders. You know, I, I mean, I literally run the company out of my house and and will reach millions of leaders a year. It's like, guys, this is an opportunity. and But people can't see it that way. And so I'm trying to move the needle a little bit. If I have a bias, it's like, maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe everybody you want to reach is online. Um, and I wouldn't say that's not falling on deaf ears, but it has been a much more uphill battle than before. I, yeah, I think this is fatigue too. David and I, like racial reconciliation justice is really close to his heart, to my heart, and to the heart of a lot of mutual friends. There's some new data from Barna that shows that the apathy is higher than it was two years ago. Yeah. And people, I don't know, I have a suspicion, I don't know how to track this. And, and this is not an excuse, because I think that's a mistake. Tony and I are working on ways that we can be part of the solution, not the problem, my wife, Tony, and I. But I wonder if people are just at so much fatigue. Like I get exhausted looking at my newsfeed on my phone and I'm like, ah, it's enough stories. Everything, you know, climate's bad. There's hurricanes, there's fires, there's, um, you know, border lockdowns. People are dying of COVID. There's political division. There's an election coming up. It's like, where's the good news? Deficits are soaring. People aren't employed. Like there's almost like a fatigue. I'm preaching through Genesis 3. And, you know, when we ate from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we did get actually knowledge, but we did not get wisdom and we did not get power. And I think technology has amplified that to the point where now we know more than we can possibly deal with. We do not have the bandwidth or capacity to handle that much information, that much suffering. So we have some of the knowledge. We don't have all of God's knowledge. We're not omniscient, but we don't have his wisdom and we don't have his power. And I think it's killing us. That's fascinating, Kerry. I think, I think you've absolutely put your finger on something there that we have become almost all-knowing. Yeah. How do we move from no, knowledge to wisdom? 
Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think part of it, it starts with putting a filter on this stuff. I mean, you can go down, I don't know whether uh, your listeners will have watched the Social Dilemma Netflix documentary. It's a dialogue I've been tracking for a number of years. Uh, I was a huge fan of technology in the early days. And then a few years ago, changed my opinion on it. I'm like, wait a minute, there's a lot of division and a lot of like not good stuff out there. And, you know, I'm on the internet, I run an internet business. So I'm part of the problem, but I really want to use it to be part of the solution. Yeah. So I think part of that is developing a really good filter. I've got some personal habits. Uh, notifications have been off on my phone for years now because it was driving me crazy. I was in meetings and it's like, someone liked your picture, someone liked this, someone tagged you. It's like, well, your phone just vibrates and buzzes all day. So that's off. I have an Apple watch on, but it's on silent all the time. So I never get interrupted so that I can fully focus on you. So that's step one. Number two, I've unfollowed a lot of people this year, people who are adding to the noise and the anger and the frustration, some church leaders. I'm like, yeah, I got to unfollow you because it creates this, this anxiety inside me. Like there's one guy I'm thinking of, I thought about him this week and I'm like, oh, I haven't heard from him in four months. It's like, yeah, because you muted him. <laughs> and I'm like, but my life is better because that guy was just always riling me up and I don't really have a relationship with him. And then deepening real life relationships. So I think uh, I've got, I just finished the draft on a new book that'll come out in the fall of 2021, but I've got a whole section on how to handle people to reduce anxiety. Uh, there's a sociologist, a British evolutionary psychologist and researcher anthropologist named Robin Dunbar, who really makes a compelling argument that uh, historically humankind has lived in villages or communities of 150 people to 200 people. And that beyond that, we don't have the capacity for relationship. So it's this bizarre thing where I've got to deal with, you know, a million and a half liters a month and yet know that I as a human do not have the ability to relate to them. So in the book, I've got some filters on how to handle all that stuff. You know, who are you, who are your core relationships? So I think part of it is just, is just getting rid of a lot of the noise and really focusing on, okay, who can I make a difference to this week? So I have a buddy, Frank in Atlanta, he and I text every morning and we just do uh, best worst pray. It's like, here's the best thing that happened yesterday. Worst thing that happened. Please pray for me on X. And today we spent an hour on the phone. I just hadn't heard his voice in a long time. Like Frank gets my time and attention because he's one of my best friends. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I, I will, you know, I mailed a book to a woman in Australia today who's struggling with burnout. Um, so I can, I can make a difference from time to time, but I cannot have a close personal relationship with all of those people. And if you're leading a church of 300, that's your problem too. I remember, you know, when we were 300 people, my brain started to melt. When we were 600, it was almost a nuclear meltdown. And at 1,000, it's like, I don't even know who these people are anymore. So you just, you've got to figure that out. And I think it's hyper confusing to people. And I think it's a great advantage that I, given my age, have, have a long pre-digital memory. And so I remember what it was like. I was applying for my green card, which I have now for the United States. And like long before COVID or, or the environment we're in last year, you know, it's like you leave everything at the door. You leave your cell phone, you leave your technology, your watch. You basically walk in without a belt and, you know, you're sitting there, you're lucky to have shoes on. Yeah. And I'm there three hours waiting for the immigration officer. And I'm looking at the wall and I'm like, this is like 1985. 
Like I remember 1985 and I'm watching the second hand on the clock. And then I'm like, well, I wonder what color paint that is. And then I'm looking at the ceiling tiles and studying people. And it was actually, it was about a three hour wait with like nothing to do, but it was good discipline. And we just don't get that anymore. Yeah. As I'm listening to you, what's flooding my mind is my teenagers. Uh, I think what triggered me is hearing you talk about how long your pre-digital life is. I've never heard it said that way before. I really like that. Hmm. But one of the challenges we have as parents is my wife and I will be thinking out loud to each other about a schedule issue that affects our kids. Maybe my daughter has asked, can I go to this person's house? As my wife and I are discussing in real time how we can make it happen, my daughter's texting her friend all of the changes back and forth between my wife and I. Like, uh, I'll be there at 11. No, 11.20. No. And because there's some sense of urgency in her, she feels like ethically obligated to be on her device communicating instantly all the time. If a friend of hers texts her or however they get, you know, get it, whatever app they use, it's, it's almost impossible for her to feel like a decent human being and not immediately get back to her friend. That's really interesting, you know, and the documentary pointed out there's a researcher uh, who wasn't in the documentary named Jean Twenge from the University of San Diego, I think. She's plotted the the spike in anxiety in teenagers that really peaked, that started to really skyrocket around 2011, 2012. And they've got decades of data on this. So generally, you know, the average 19-year-old is X amount of anxious and the average, you know, 13-year-old is so much anxiety. And those are normal variations within one or 2%. And then in 2012, Gene Twenge found that, um, you know, teenagers and preteens and college students, their anxiety went through the roof. And now, you know, I've got, I've got people on my staff in their twenties who got their cell phones in middle school. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of my mentoring of my team is sort of reorienting them around life skills and focus and all of that. And, trying to live with, with, with less tension. But yeah, I think that's interesting. And I've got a couple of sons who are in their twenties now and they're less digital than I am. Um, my one son, you're lucky if you get an answer back two days from now, it's like, I haven't looked at the phone and he's a computer engineer. Now, ironically, the people who are most in tech are actually the least likely to use it in their own life. That's a Silicon Valley story that's emerging. He's not Silicon Valley, but he does a lot of software engineering and my other son, he uses it for work, but like he is very happy to put his phone away and just focus on the campfire or whatever is happening. Yeah. So it's interesting. Going to be really fascinating to track this next generation. Yeah, it really is. I, I'm curious to get your opinion. Um, you know, I, I've got a broad audience, but I'd say the ma- most chunk of my audience are church staff. What yeah. do you think church staffs are worrying about that in your opinion, they just don't really need to worry about? I think one thing nobody needs to worry about is what's going to happen to the church because the church is an eternal thing. It's Jesus. But secondly, it's way less complicated than you think to make an impact online. I think a lot of people are going, I didn't go to school for this. I'm not trained for this. I'm not good at this. Well, nobody was. I mean, I started listening to podcasts on online marketing just for fun about a decade ago, started listening to Smart Passive Income, Tim Ferriss Show as Tim came online and a lot of Silicon Valley podcasts. And I just did it as a hobby because it was interesting and different. And, you know, when I started blogging or, or whatever, so a lot of leaders are worried about their online impact. Guys, you'll figure it out. Like, you'll figure it out. 
Um, I started my blog, you know, which will get about a half million to three quarters of a million views a month with a $75 WordPress theme in 2012. And all I did was, now I know that was 2012, but I just decided I'm going to write three times a week. And some of those early posts were garbage, but <laughs> you know what they got. And some of the ones I write today are garbage. <laughs> they're, they're not that good. I thought they were great. Nobody else agreed. And you'll figure it out. Like just, just focus on helping people and creating value for people and connecting with families if you're in kids ministry or with your people and love them. And, and the growth will take care of itself. I'm going to ask you something, and I'd like you to correct me if I'm making an assumption that you're not intending. But when you start talking about these histories that you started to dive in 10 years ago, blogging eight years ago now, you know, steady blogging, what I heard from you is to say to church leaders, yes, you have to pivot, but it, it I don't know how to word it, Carrie. It's not as urgent as you think, or you don't have to have it figured out as quickly as you think. Is that some of the pressure we're carrying? Yeah, the second is more true. You you don't have to have it figured out. Like there's going to be a lot of experimentation, yeah. and you're going to try. You're going to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall, and two noodles will stick. And then you pay attention to the two things that stick, and you say, well, maybe we should try more of that. You know, and and I think I think online life is a lot of experimentation. And I don't mean that in terms of, you know, being voyeuristic or hypey or whatever. But you're gonna try some things and they're not gonna work. And what I really like, I run everything and I don't always get it right, but on my good days, what we try to do is we run everything through a helpful filter. How is this gonna help leaders? Mm. How is this gonna help people? And then and you know, that could be like I I interviewed you mentioned Gordon McDonald, Tim Keller. I think that's going to help people. But then I interviewed Nick Walenda, one of the flying Walenda brothers. That's like weird. But I interviewed him about how to train to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And like the training on that, great leadership potential in that. So, you know, you're, you're, you're going to you're going to experiment with different things. And there's some things I did a few years ago I'm not going to do anymore. And then there's some new things. So um, it will build over time. And I think one of the, and you know this as a podcaster, Steve, you know, like if you had started this podcast, you said you're on season five right now. Yeah, less than two years though. My, my, I was telling you before we recorded, my seasons are like um, HBO where there's three episodes sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, here's here's the standard journey and, and Apple podcast is littered with shows like this. I'm going to start a podcast. They start a podcast, they're three episodes in, they get behind or is going to be weekly, but they don't have the bandwidth to do weekly. And now they do monthly. And then they did it once a quarter. And of course your listeners aren't going to come back. They forgot about you. So what you do, you've done it right. You're like, okay, I'm going to do seasons. These are my seasons. And here you are two years later, you're still delivering. It is the long game, man. It's the long game. And, you know, I did start blogging in 2012, started my podcast in 2014. And we got some momentum out of the gate. But what shocked me is just it's that Eugene Peterson phrase, which I think he got from Kierkegaard. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. So the fact that August of 2020 was the biggest month ever in the history of my podcast, we didn't do anything different. Um, we didn't even have any megastar guests in August. Um, but all of a sudden, it just like boop, took off. And most people who catch momentum will tell you it comes when they least expect it. Still to this day, I'm a terrible predictor of what content is going to resonate and what content isn't. I'll work for eight hours on a blog post. 
and put it out and not even my mom likes it. And then sometimes I'll bang something out in 45 minutes and, you know, 100,000 people read it. I don't know. You can't predict that stuff. So the point is consistency. You try it. You stick with it. If it's not really helping people, then, okay, well, maybe this isn't helping people. So let's switch gears. Let's try this. Let's try that. So uh, the online world and what we have in church is we find a formula. We love it. It works. We ride it, ride it, ride it, ride it, ride it. And then when it stops working, years after it stops working, we're like, (laughs) okay, did something break there? It's like, no, online's way more experimental. Ricky Gervais said something really interesting because The Office, which is the most watched show on Netflix, if my stats are correct, um, you know, was, was based on the British office. Yeah. And he said the British office ran something like six episodes. It was really short, really short. Right. And he said, here's the problem with you Americans. He says, you, you find a formula and you run it into the ground. And like, we're, we're actually watching the the uh, office right now during COVID we're at like season six and Steve Carell's still there. So it's still funny. But then he left and it got really weird and then it got kind of good at the end again, maybe if you're being generous. But it's like Modern Family, really funny for the first few seasons. And then it kind of got like, oh, wow, we're doing this for a long time, aren't we? And so I think we need more experimentation and online is the perfect format for that. All right. So as I'm listening to you, Carrie, like you're giving us some actual very tangible, easily executable things. One is you're just talking about take the opportunity to slow yourself down. That's you and Tony and you and your parents and apparently uh, recreationally shopping for cars. (laughs) The other thing you said was like, really be disciplined about limiting your digital life. It's it's still going to be there. And what I love about what you shared with us there is you're not actually saying avoid the issues. You and your wife are uh, passionate about certain causes that you're going to give yourself to, but you're just not going to be flooded by every issue. This last one, I think, was just so simple and helpful. You're kind of pitching for us a vision of tenacity and faithfulness mm-hmm. in the in the new game. Like, we, it is urgent, but it's okay to experiment for a while. Stick with it. Stay faithful. Yeah, it's been a helpful conversation. You're helping me process stuff because uh, you know what? This might be year five for your church or year fifty five for your church, but in March. You're a brand new organization. Yeah, right. And so you're almost running two streams. You have your in-person stream, which has its patterns that work, but your online thing is like weeks old, months old. And like any startup, there's going to be a lot of struggle. You got to figure it out. So when people talk about hybrid church, yeah, the other half of that hybrid is, no, you're, you're a startup, man. And, you know, you're, you're going to figure that out. And I would say what I would be focusing on right now online is building trust. So the two filters we have in my company, and we've had them since day one, are, uh, is this helpful? And then uh, trust is our brand. So that's one of the reasons I'm very careful about who I let on my podcast. I'm very careful about who guest posts on my blog. I'm very careful about what I say on social media, not like in a neurotic way, yeah. but just in a, no, this isn't for sale. And we're not going to just try to get a quick hit that we really want to deliver value to people over time. And we're learning every day about some of the things that deliver value and some of the things that don't, uh, things that help leaders, things that don't help leaders. But I think if you took a similar approach, like what can we do to help families? What can we do to help people? What can we do to help people who don't have faith in God? What can we do to help our community? and you experiment with that online, eventually it'll, it'll be a long obedience in the same direction and you'll figure it out. You will. 
and we're all kind of new at this. And, you know, the churches that have had the early momentum in that, like Transformation Church or Life Church or, you know, North Point or Elevation, very established ministries, well, they have like massive budgets. So you can't compare yourself to them and say, oh, well, we're just going to be like them and start a digital department with 38 people. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. You're going to find the 18-year-old who can get you online or, or the, the person who has a good YouTube channel who can give you a few pointers and you're going to build it from there. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a lot of my work lately is, is church organizations that want me to help their staff avoid burnout. Yeah. You know, because of managing leadership anxiety. What's interesting is I've never really studied burnout. I have a theory on it that it has more to do with chronic anxiety than workload. But hmm. you actually wrote a book on burnout. I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Um, a phenomenal book. I find burnout hard to know when you're about to be in it. I find it to be elusive. Is that accurate to your experience? Oh, I was the last guy. I, I was probably burned out a year before I realized I was burned out. No, you're totally right. How did There's you know very, you were burned out, first of all? My body shut down. The The biggest key to me, my body shut down. So, I mean, I got up out of bed every day, but my energy level... And I'm an Enneagram 8. So, Ian Morgan Cron would say, you know, I wake up with 200% battery life. Okay? Yeah. That's, that's just me. That's how I'm wired. And I would wake up with 30% battery life after a full charge overnight. And I'm like, that's not normal. And then my passion was gone. I'm a pretty passionate person. I care about stuff. And I, I loved our church. We had a great church. There was nothing wrong. We were growing. But like my passion for ministry was gone. My passion for life was gone. I began to get, uh, and you'll, you'll, maybe this is the wrong term. I think it's agoraphobic. I was afraid of people. Um, so I'm 6'2". My wife is 5'3". When we go into social settings, I'd kind of use her as a decoy and hide yeah. behind her because I just didn't want to interact with other people. And that is not me. So I had my whole world got really small, really dark. I probably would have qualified. This is like 14 years ago. I probably would have qualified as being clinically depressed had I sought a diagnosis. I was seeing a counselor and, you know, I came through it. But when, and, and then my emotions just went flat. They were just, they were dead or inappropriate. It was either I felt nothing or when I should have been happy, I was upset. And when I should have been upset, I was like not. So it was, it was all of those things. And of course, you know, once you're falling off the cliff, you realized, oh, I'm over the edge, yeah. but there's nothing to grab onto. So that you're, you're hundred percent right. People told me for years, you're going to burn out. Cause I was, I was working too many hours. I, I did not have a good strategy for scaling the church. Um, too much was flowing through me. I was busy all the time and I'm like, no, I'm superhuman. I can handle that. And the rules never apply to you until they do. And when I fell off the cliff, um, yeah, it's like you're in free fall and you're, and, and that, that was to me, that was burnout. Like, I don't know how to get back. That was the hard part is, you know, when you're tired, it's like, oh, go to bed. It's cause and effect and you feel better. Take a vacation. Okay. Now I feel better. It's like, you know, take a nap. Oh, I feel better or whatever. Take a break. I feel better. Uh, but with burnout, there was no cause and effect. It was just, okay, I'm sleeping, but I'm more tired than when I went to bed and uh, I'm trying here, but nothing's happening. So that was terrifying. Yeah. The, you know, there's different kinds of personalities. Was it difficult for you to forgive yourself once you'd figured out you were flying down the cliff, you burned out, you're now trying to come out the other side. Was it hard for you to then forgive yourself for not seeing it? What was that like? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I was so 
negative, <laughs> so flat. I don't think I really felt ashamed as much as I did shocked. And the pain was so deep. I remember there was a moment, a pivotal moment with my counselor where I just thought, okay, it's over. I'm 41. My life's over. This is, this was a bad run. It's done, you know, and I'll, I'll never be the same. And, and he said to me, he said, Carrie, you're going to come back. He says, you will get through this. But he said, just remember this because there are people who don't and remember what this felt like. And that gave me a glimmer of hope. Mm. And, but I think on the other side, like as I started, you know, the, the battery started to go to 35%, 40%, 60%, 70%. I think the pain was so intense that my focus was on how do I make sure this never happens again? And so didn't see it coming was sort of the story of getting into all that and the burnout and the cynicism. And then my next book, which will come out a year from now is the system I've used for the last 15 years to stay out of burnout that you know, has, has so far been very, very thankful. And the heart of that is live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. So what am I doing today that will make sure I'm not just surviving tomorrow, but thriving? And right. there's a whole system around that. Yeah, proactive habits and ways of thinking. Yeah, because, because you know, people always say, oh, maybe you need a sabbatical. It's like time off won't heal you when the problem is how you spend time on. Right, that's right. right? Yeah. It's not going to. Sabbatical can be the worst thing, right? If you're close to burnout, sabbatical is just going to do you in, I would think. Well, it's a completely fake environment. So let's say you actually get better. You go to therapy, you get better. You're living in some villa on the Mediterranean. And, you know, this is the life. Oh, it's amazing. And I've been gone for three months and I wrote a book or read a book or whatever. And then you go back into this horrible life you created and you're dead within a week. It's like, that's why sabbaticals don't work. You're supposed to go into a sabbatical full, not empty. And most people go into sabbaticals empty. Yeah. Look, Kerry, I mean, this is why I wish we had two hours because the, <laughs> there's so much of what you've talked about that um, could be its own exploration. Like even just that last statement, I, I took a sabbatical in 2016. And I think the best thing that I did and our elders did was we worked hard on preparation before I went on sabbatical. Okay. I can't imagine. And I wasn't, I didn't do a sabbatical because I was like close to burnout or something, but you you absolutely nailed it. If you wake up day one of sabbatical, worn down and ground down, oh man. Well, and most, I mean, this is anecdotal. It's not polling data, but most of my friends who have taken sabbaticals have gone into one barely breathing. And, and then they come back and often they're gone within six months to a year. Yeah. And I really, this is in the new book that'll come out next year, but you know, I've been really thinking about it. Like, maybe that's why sabbaticals generally don't work. I don't think they're a bad idea. I've never taken one. But like if you're using them, it's like people who work for the weekend, right? It's like, yeah. oh, thank goodness it's Friday. Here we go. It's like I've never felt that way in the last 14 years because I'm Friday is a nice finish line, but I'm not desperate to get to Friday. And then thank goodness for Saturday and here comes Sunday. You know, it's like, no, I actually really enjoy Tuesdays and I enjoy Thursdays. And some of them are meat grinders. I had a Tuesday this week that was a meat grinder, but it was the exception, not the rule. And my team and I know, okay, this is going to be a tough day. We'll get through it. And uh, so it's really been the, the focus that I have had to back to your original question is when I was recovering, I'm like, how do I make sure I never get to this place again? And then in the last five years, it's been, well, can I help other leaders make sure that they never get to that place? And so that's become a a life passion of mine. 
Well, I, I, I feel like it's time that you brace yourself like a man as we endure the gauntlet of anxiety questions. All right, here we go. Yeah, so I'll, I'll launch uh, probably three to five of them at you and uh, pa- pass or play. They're all optional. The first first one is it's it's my experience that oftentimes a leader, particularly a driven leader, is sometimes the last in the room to know when they're not okay. You kind of referred to that with with burnout. How do the the people in your life who love you, Tony and, and those in your life, how do they know you're okay before you know? What signs are you giving them? Often they do know before I know. So I'm I'm fortunate to have some really good long-term relationships in my life and people who can call me out. I've got an assistant. She's on mat leave right now. Worked together for 13 years. You know, Tony and I have been married for 30 years. And like just yesterday, I was kind of sulking around the house. And Tony was like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And she goes, well, you're not right. And well, it's my last year at the church. And I think some of that was catching up with me. Mm. And so I think for me, the big game changer, because I had way more of a negative impact on people in my 30s than I perhaps have had in the last decade. Not every day is perfect, but it's better. But I've given those people around me permission to speak in. And, and that is saying, how am I doing? You know, my, my friend Jeff Henderson from Gwinnett Church, he's got one of the best questions and he phrased it this way, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And so I've asked that in my kids, I've asked that, and my kids will tell me, you're not very present. You're always moving on to the next thing. You're, 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 you're on your phone or whatever. So I've taken those, you know, that advice very seriously over the years. And when I'm with my kids, I try to be fully present when I'm with my wife, try to be fully present with my team. You know, Sarah knows me so well, my assistant, she'll just be like, you're going to hate next week, but you're going to get to the week after and don't leak all over the team like that. You're, you know, She's so nice, but she would say like, yeah, you really weren't at your best in the meeting. Mm. And sometimes, because I'm not very good at reading people, Mm. um, when we work together at the church, now it's a virtual company, I would pull her aside after and I would just say, hey, what happened in that meeting? Mm. Because if you tell me you're happy, I think you're happy. But she's like, well, Steve wasn't really happy because blah, blah, blah. So that's how we handle that. Okay. I think one of the surefire ways for a leader to start to notice what drives anxiety in them is to put them in a situation where they don't know what to do. Mm. Tell us about a time recently when you didn't know what to do and tell us what was going on under the surface in you. Yeah, I would say COVID for sure. We had, uh, you know, whole what, what turned out to be a whole year of uh, speaking stuff gone. And I went into, you and I talked about this on my podcast. I went into kind of hyper productivity mode I was working 18 hour days. Yeah. And you know, I'm I'm just like we had a problem on the blog more recently where traffic overnight dropped, like just dropped. We went from with 50%. And I'm like to my team, what the heck's going on? Did Google break? Like did Facebook break? What happened? And I am the driven guy. And I got up really early one morning and I said to Tony, he's like, why are you up so early? I'm like, I'm saving the company. (laughs) I wasn't, it wasn't in danger, but you know, I have this like thing that I'm like, we're going to turn this around and I'm going to beat the blog until it, you know, and sure enough, I wrote a post that turned everything around and we got our stride back, but I will go to overworking. I will go to overworking. Um, and I'll tell people I don't know, but like nobody is going to out hustle me until we figure that out. Some of that's yeah. healthy and some of that's not. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the shadow side of a gift. I'm I'm going to see if we can go deeper. And and oftentimes when I'm doing this work with people, it takes time. So uh, yeah. this may be one you want to pass on, but that, that overproductivity, overfunctioning, 
Uh, are you in a position to name the story you're telling yourself? I think probably that my value is from my work. Okay. That I am what I produce. You know, I have this irrational fear, Mr. Therapist. I have this irrational fear of being lazy. And it's really interesting. It's like, no one's going to find me asleep. No one's going to find me. And like, it was like super driven in my thirties. And now I'm learning how to relax. I have a couple of hobbies, but I think, and I don't know hundred percent where that comes from, but I have this fear that I'm lazy. And, you know, when I say it out loud, I'll say it to my close staff or I'll say it to my wife. And Tony just looks at me, my wife, Tony, and she's like, you're the last person to be lazy. Okay. I'm like, yeah, but I'm afraid I could be. So I don't know what that is, Steve. Right. You're not at high risk of suddenly becoming a lazy human. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Highly unlikely I'm going to be unemployed because I would just like if this company died tomorrow and, you know, everything fell apart, I'd just start something up. Like, what is that? I don't know. Right. But you're not worried. You'd probably figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But that, that like, I I have a bias for activity. Um, The one scripture story I really struggle with to this day, and I'm going to argue was wrong in heaven, was Mary and Martha. It's like, no, Martha was right. Just, what do you mean? Just sit there and listen at his feet. Like, come on, do something. Someone has to do the dishes. Someone has to clean up after the body. Dishes wash themselves? Like, come on. (laughs) I mean, I know that's not right, but there's a sure. part of me that just emotionally thinks, no, Jesus, you got that one wrong. Yeah, no, right on. Uh, I, I think every leader carries into every environment um, assumptions from our upbringing. <laughs> and uh, some of them are really good and some of them get in the way. I, I wonder if you'd be willing to name for us one trait that you inherited from your family that really serves you well as a leader and then one trait that gets in the way? Uh, the work ethic, for sure. Um, my parents were both immigrants, very hardworking, uh, ran their own company for a number of years. So, you know, that that drive, that entrepreneurial drive, definitely the apple does not fall far from the tree. And God's used it to like a far greater extent than I ever would have imagined. Uh, one that's not, I would say that there was, and I don't know whether this was, you know, where this came from, but I was raised to be suspicious of people Mm. that not to be, there's the one hand of like being super trusting, but then also I had this innate like suspicion. Mm. I've had to learn how to choose trust. So that's been the last 15 years. Andy Stanley's really helped me clarify thinking around that, but choose trust, choose to believe the best rather than assuming the worst, there was an assume the worst thing. And whether that was my schooling, my family, I don't, I haven't really traced that out, but I went into life um, thinking, oh, you're probably, you're probably going to get me. So on the surface, I was very trusting. Hmm. I'd be like, but deep down, you couldn't get very close. Yeah. And so now I, I am, I'm probably a little more wary on the outside, but once you're in, like you're in. Oh, great. Last question, Kerry. I, I believe that perfect love really does cast out all fear. Yeah. And so I'm always interested in hearing from everyone I talk to, um, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Mm, that's a great question. Um, and that's a struggle for me, to feel fully and completely loved. Uh, I would feel it from my family. I would feel it, um, you know, my mind first went to go with your gut. That first hour in the morning with God... I would say I really have seen a shift in the last decade or so from feeling like I'm working for God to working because of a relationship with God. Now, that's not what, what's, what's the way to say it, but the love is not conditional upon my performance. And I would say 
then we've definitely arrived in that place with as a family, with my wife, with my kids, you know, but as a chronic, a serial overachiever, that one's a tough one. But no, I know, I know Tony's in this for life. My parents are my, you know, family. And I've, I've developed a, a, a bunch of close friends over the years through trial and error. Oh, yeah. As we all do, yeah. right? That I would say, no, nah, he's, he's got my back. And, you know, my friend Frank, who I mentioned, we talked today and I just reached out and we texted all the time. But I'm like, can we do a daily text? Because COVID, when we're all in quarantine, I'm like, I just feel really alone. I got all these people, yeah. but like, you know. And so we were just talking today and he goes, that's been so life-giving for me. And like, I think we're going to do that indefinitely. Yeah. And so to have a few people like that in your life is, is just really, really rich. Yeah. Carrie, it, it's just been a, a, a genuine honor and a treat to get to talk to you. Uh, you were so kind to have me on your show, which was a game changer for me in my work. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, yeah, you're just one of those people I think we could genuinely listen to for hours because you've, you've got some hard forged wisdom and I really appreciate well, you. Yeah, great questions. You got me to talk about stuff I never talk about, which is, I think, the sign of a good interview. Awesome. Well, that's a, that's a mighty high compliment coming from you. I'll say that. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you, Steve. Thanks for your ministry. Uh, your episode on my show has blessed so many and it, it will not be the last. We'll have you back. And uh, just, a, just a joy to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, and obviously, folks, I, I think everyone listening to me knows Kieran Newhoff, but obviously we'll have a... Uh, a link to his uh, website and our show notes. Uh, he has all manner of resources that are gold for, for any kind of leader, faith leader or, or business leader. All right, folks, we'll see you next episode. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.